Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 391, A National War. So, last time, we ended on a sort of cusp, I think. That perishing King Pym has perished. King Charles is alive and kicking, having dodged the 17th century equivalent of a Pershing missile. The board game of civil war has been packed away. As the winter has closed in, people are camping out to avoid the perishing cold. And maybe people are getting out board games and cards to while away the hours. Both parties are looking forward to a bigger, a better party next year. The king will have his army from Ireland. For Parliament, the perishing Scots will be turning up. That's enough perishing, I think, now, Stephen. Honour satisfied? But while the good people of Britain and Ireland retreat to their houses and their farms to focus on dealing with the weather, which was awful, in the 1640s, by the way, you might even call it perishing. We are about to step outside of the story to have a look at matters military. I feel the need to explain myself, I have to say. So, first of all, I have always wanted to say Stardate Supplemental, which good honest checker does not. So, I can call this episode a Stardate Supplemental episode. More though, it is just the right time. I have been dithering about when I do it. And Jan of this parish got in touch and he said to me, it's time, and this gave me the push I needed. It seems like the right time because by the end of 1643, the battle lines have been drawn. Men are under arms all over the country. Country committees and JPs and so on are taxing and administering away depending on where you live. There are fortified houses and billeted soldiers all over the place. 
We've had a little over a year of warfare, and this is it. This is now the way life is. England, a nation which never wanted this war, who are basically pretty happy with the society, whatever we might think, in the enormity of our condescension from posterity. But England is now at war with itself, and it is too committed really to draw back, though negotiations will of course continue. So, I'm going to give you two Stardate Supplemental episodes on all matters military. Now, I had a model for this before I started from my podcasting father, Mike Duncan. That actually sounds a little creepy. Sorry, Mike. But you know, history of Rome, inspiration, the exciting podcasting frontier lands in the days of my youth and all that. Well, I have returned to Michael and his Revolutions series, and he did a thoroughly delightful 15-minute supplementary episode on military matters on the English Revolution in the glittering treasure house of podcasting, the episode 1.5a, The Armies in Revolutions, is a shining gem of wit and brevity. And that may be all you need, so do look it up. Now, Mike consciously avoided all the sieges in the interest of narrative clarity, and the lad is a genius, but I am doing it differently, of course. One purpose is that I can then largely park matters military after I've done these two episodes and then take it for read that you understand the context of all these people waving spears around and the military nature of the world people now inhabit. And once done, get on with the narrative. We'll still cover things like Marston Moor and the Siege of Basinghouse and stuff like that because that is dramatic history stuff. But I won't need to warble on again about garrison duty on muskets, pipes and lighting matches. I will be able to stick to cabbages and I will be able to stick to kings. I am going to divide my story into two parts. Today, we're going to focus on the national war. This will focus on the big marching armies. We're going to talk about how the leaders of both sides termed a ramshackle group of disparate individuals into effective fighting forces, the symbols, experiences, aspirations that bound these armies together. We're going to talk Turkey about the components of the army and how they work together in battle or not, as the case may be. In the next episode, we will talk about war in the neighbourhood. So I have tried to emphasise throughout that the English civil wars spread unevenly but thickly through every artery of local society. It wasn't just two big blocks of territory, each with a clear loyalty, facing each other off. So we're going to talk about the way that plays out in sieges and in garrisons. Then we're going to bring all that together, and we're going to talk about the cost of war how all of this affects the people of England and Wales in their daily lives, and the final accounting in lives. By the way, there are a few books I have used if you want to look into all of this in more depth. The classic one is Charles Carlton's book, Going to the Wars. Ian Gentles and Bernard Cap in Kenyon and Olmeyer's History of the Civil Wars, Nick Lipscomb's English Civil War Atlas, and also Mike Duncan recommends All the King's Armies by Stuart Reid. A broad bit of context first, very briefly. I am going to major on the First Civil War. You did know there are three, right? The first one runs from about 1642 to 1646. The other thing to mention is the new model army. We've not got there in the story so far, and I will refer to it. So, essentially, stripping away all the brushwood, the new model is introduced in 1645, to bring an extra level of efficiency and professionalism to the parliamentary army, which works. The new model has its own flavour and also 
fab fact for your pub quiz tomorrow night, take out Spencer Percival and Liz Truss and put in that it's the new model which starts the British fetish for redcoats on the basis that in a hundred years or so, they'll make nice targets for American snipers. Just to give you an idea of the scale of all of this, in each of the campaigning seasons, there were about 150,000 men under military discipline generally across the wars. So that's about 10% of the adult male population, up to 50, after which age, if my personal experience is anything to go by, it is impossible to fight your way out of a paper bag. Overall, this probably means that a quarter or a third of blokes joined up with the intention of killing someone at some point during the civil wars, which is a lot of killing blokes. I don't think anything like this, which affected the whole people so nearly, had happened, well, ever, probably. All those civil wars, the anarchy, wars of the roses, by comparison, those are just localised, posh people squabbles. Do not think that 150,000 a year represents marching armies, though, because it does not. Some stats for you here. And a point of comparison with the daddy of all 17th century wars, the Thirty Years' War. So, in November 1632, Gustavus Adolphus had 183,000 men under arms alone, ignoring the other side. They were in three broad groups. 11% were under his direct command, 36% were under independent armies, and all the rest, 52% apparently, were spread around in garrison duty, because Gustavus Adolphus never quite gave 100% apparently, ladies and gentlemen, just 99%, not the 101% required of footballers. By comparison, in June 1645, Charles I had about 40,000 men under arms, nothing like 180. 25% were under his direct command, 27% were down in the West Country, and the remaining 47%, about half again, were spread around England and Wales. Seems Charles also gave 99% too, so no wonder he lost. The points I'm making here are the Civil War armies themselves are quite titchy compared to the Thirty Years' War, but most families are still affected by the Civil Wars. And war is local as well as national. Winning the war was like a marriage, to have and to hold and to tax. Do you have taxes in a marriage, don't you? Or have we been doing it wrong? So winning territory was, of course, a good thing, but it also meant a drain on the size of your national marching armies because 50% of your military blokes are spread out in garrisons. For marching armies, there was a fighting season, although less pronounced than the Thirty Years' War, it seems, because over there, 87% of the battles were fought between April and November. In the English Civil Wars, only 64% happened between April and November, although all the big ones happened then but there was fighting going on somewhere in other times too. And I wonder if that's Max Weber's Protestant work ethic. I mean, we're a hard-working bunch as English. We do like to keep busy with our hobbies and all that. It's a bit surprising, though, because the weather was really rubbish in the 1640s. It was wet and it was cold. The global cooling period, known as the Little Ice Age, from about 1550 to 1680, has been blamed for all sorts of stuff. Colonialism, political turmoil, plague famine, just for starters, but also for wet and miserable soldiers. Oh, and artillery that gets stuck on really bad roads. The roads are really bad, by the way. If there is one thing to take away from this episode, which I hope is stuff full of interesting things, at least, remember, the roads are really bad. However, in winter, 
November to February, there was a general, if partial, shutdown, and marching armies went into quarters. Generally, that tended to be better for royalists, since their main army was based around the city of Oxford. Parliament tended to be out in the countryside, billeted over a wider area, which, of course, the locals hated. I mean, just hated. A bunch of smelly soldiers in your kazi is not good, to the point of being seen as unconstitutional oppression. Anyway, let me remind you about the scale of diversion, the thing about armies springing up and disappearing like mushrooms, remember that? During winter, desertion goes absolutely potty. Reams and rivers and cascades of soldiers simply go home, and you had no idea whether they were coming back or not. You didn't have their email addresses, and another recruitment drive was almost always required to get the mushrooms to come back. So let's say you have your recruits at last, from fresh-faced to, frankly, heavily cynical. The job then was to create an effective fighting force from them. And we're going to talk about how the army commanders on both sides tried to do just that. And the focus for them all was pretty clear. And here I have a couple of quotes for you. Here is Xenophon. Not numbers or strength bring victory in war, but whichever army goes into battle stronger in their soul. Alternatively, Napoleon was no slouch in the soldiering front, I'm told, and he'd said something similar. The moral is to the physical as three is to one, though he said it in a French accent. So, how to achieve that? Ralph Hopton had practical Anglo-Saxon attitudes towards the question. Pray well, command well, hang well. Money, leadership, discipline, basically. But first of all, there was training. Recognition of the importance of training was marked by the plethora of new manuals that came out. 35 appeared, I think. Now, obviously, military skills was the main objective. Drilling pikemen, for example, and the techniques developed under the likes of Prince Morris and Gustavus Adolphus in the Thirty Years' War, or to maximise rates of fire for musketeers or for pike to work with musket. Though it is worth noting that one of the things they don't really do very much is carry out training for different disciplines like cavalry and infantry to work together. But anyway, that's a detail. But it was also recognised that training was not just there to make military skills, critical though that was, it was also to steal men for war, in all its horror. John Taylor grimly reminded his readers that soldiers are not for sport and joust, but for earnest. Neither is war to be accounted a May game or a Morris dance, but as a plague and a scourge. Captain Sam Jarvis wrote, We that have grieved the slain, that they must die, without method and disorderly. But now we have obtained the handsome skill, by order, method and by rule, to kill. I am put in mind of Harry Foster's memory of Newbury and the effect of the cannon. The enemy cannon did play against the Red Regiment of the trained bands, and they did some execution amongst us at first, and were somewhat dreadful, when men's bowels and brains flew in our faces, but blessed be, God gave us courage. There's that perishing accent again. Harry mentions God, and there was, of course, more than just drill and training to keep soldiers fighting in the face of such stuff. In brief, Civil War historians seem to agree on a hierarchy of the things that kept soldiers steeled in the face of horror in order of importance. Prayer, solidarity with the group, hatred for the enemy, and belief in their cause. The new model 
would adopt the first of those in spades and become known as the Praying Army as they marched with extemporaneous praying aloud. Praying and the immediate presence of God was a feature of the parliamentarian armies in particular. There was a constant rattle and hum of sermons to whip up ardour and to fill any available gap in time. The Lord's Day we spent in preaching and prayer while our gunners were battering, record Hugh Peters at Winchester. Hugh Peters is one of those hard-to-comprehend figures at once grating, misogynistic, electric, charismatic. Very hard to really imagine without being there, I should think. But he was very effective. He was Fairfax and Cromwell's favourite preacher, sent like a bacillus into military trouble spots to energise. He was not alone. A parliamentary soldier at Marlborough recalled how John Sedgwick thrashed such a sweating sermon that he put off his doublet. Soldiers were constantly reading the Bible, and publishers are a cold-hearted, hard-eyed people, I should know, and there seemed to be no reason to not to make a few quid out of the current crisis, which was, after all, a legitimate business opportunity. So there was therefore a special edition of the Bible called the Soldier's Pocket Bible, with specific extracts dealing with battle courage, remembering to do your laces up, trusting in God, keeping your powder dry, that sort of thing. The almost ubiquitous presence of pocket Bibles also had another benefit. They were good bullet stoppers. And there can be no providence more providential than having a Bible save your life. It's not just a parliamentary thing, of course, though it was way strongest with the new model. Royalists knew God that was on their side too. So at the Battle of Cheriton, the royal war cry was, God with us! which felt like a bit of a cultural appropriation by the parliamentary team, so they yelled back, Jesus with us! Presumably, the Holy Spirit was keeping score, and there I believe I may have made a Trinitarian gag in communion with the Church of England, happy to be corrected. Who says the Anglicans can't share a joke or two? Such shared values helped build esprit de corps. Ritual and banners were also very important. Parliamentary armies often focused on the cause on their banners, so images of Magna Carta. But other common images were of the kings, wicked advisers, bishops, monks, papists. There was even one radical one echoing the words of Henry Parker, England's first great radical political philosopher that we heard about before. It had the image of a severed head and an axe dripping with blood above a motto in Latin, the safety of the people is the supreme law. Most were theological though, so Philip Skippen, both wrote a religious tract and created his own regimental colours, showing a sword of heaven and a Bible with the Latin tag, Pray and fight, Jehovah helps and will continue to help. The Cavaliers had the better of it though, in my humble opinion, without doubt closer to the Archbishopric of Banterbury. Cuckold, we come! was a direct attack on Essex's personal life. There was one with an erect penis and the tag, Ready for anything. More serious stuff was around the king and his right, Touch not mine anointed at random. So, when you visualise armies, you need to imagine all this colour and banners too. Training and campaigning may be created the greatest source of morale, a feeling of fellowship against everything outside. In this us-against-the-world mentality, locally raised regiments had an extra advantage. The Scottish commander Robert Munro in Ulster spoke of friendship grown up with education, confirmed by familiarity in frequenting the danger of war. Richard Baxter remembered the men of Colonel Whaley's regiment. 
Many of my dearest friends were there, whose welfare I was tender of. It was them that stuck to me, and I to them. I would not forsake them. My faithful people that went through with me so many wars and dangers. I could then go on about solidarity after the misery of marching in the cold and wet without cover. Generally, only officers had tents, enlisted men had barns or slept under the stars. The endless and continuous marching, foraging for food, and also travelling around the country. I mean, far be it from me to suggest that in Civil War campaigns lay the start of tourism, but I did laugh at this quote from Robert Harley. You should have seen the Londoners run to see what manner of things cows were. Plus à changer. The flip side of camaraderie was hatred of the enemy, and this hardened of necessity in some ways as the wars go on. Less and less mercy is seen on the battlefield. Cavaliers were contemptuous of Parliament's roundhead rabble, while parliamentarians were convinced that the royalists were riddles with papists, Irishmen and foul-mouthed debauchees. You might want to try out some of the catcalls, just to get in the mood. They're probably somewhere you're not going to be arrested. So, let's have it a go. Papist dog! Rebel rogues! Essex bastards! Or advise them to go preach in a crab tree! But to set against that were a couple of things. There was a healthy suspicion of the propaganda being thrown at them by their leaders and partisan news sheets, and a healthy respect for the bravery of men who shared their trade and lives, albeit on the other side. Sometimes that bemused them a bit. So a parliamentarian soldier wrote this after Marston Moore, which is a lovely quote. And as for the enemy, the truth is they behaved themselves with more valour and resolution than ever man saw coincident with a bad cause. Finally, of course, commanders had a big impact. Morale was much better when they felt their commander had their best interests at heart, shared their values, and would hold fast when the hammer was down. This is where Cromwell and Fairfax excelled. Not only was Thomas Fairfax one of the finest soldiers of his generation, he had a strong sense of honour, of responsibility towards the well-being of his men, and great personal courage, and an ability to keep his head under fire. As a result, one witness marvelled that he did so animate the soldiers, as is hardly to be expressed. Fairfax, like Cromwell, was a stern disciplinarian, and their reputations did not suffer because of that, quite the opposite. Cromwell was also a leader of frenetic energy, and his soldiers knew that such energy saved lives. Make haste your horses, a few hours may undo you if neglected, he wrote once. But his soldiers knew that despite this urgency, Cromwell did not make careless of his soldiers' lives. He took care to make sure they were well equipped and provisioned. More than that, he had nothing of that noblesse oblige. Carlton writes that men followed Cromwell because he took them for what they were. He also gave his leaders great latitude and room to take initiative. I have a lovely company. They are honest, sober Christians. They expect to be used as men. Cromwell himself wrote. There is not much of this kind of vibe amongst the royalist leaders. It is generally agreed, actually, that Charles became a warrior of some skill in manoeuvre, fighting fine campaigns against Essex and Waller in particular. Brave, but cold and formal with his men, and a poor judge of character sometimes. The Marquis of Newcastle did seem to be loved by his men, whatever his military failings, and George Goring would show moments of brilliance. But Prince Rupert was, of course, the talisman 
a brilliant cavalry commander who understood the need for speed and concentration of force. He captured the imagination of his troops and protected the interests of his cavalry remorselessly. But he, like Goring, had very few qualms about the lives of the people for whom he was supposed to be fighting, little or no compassion. He visited multiple atrocities on the cities of England, a brutal man. He also thoroughly antagonised many of Charles's councillors, which would have a direct consequence at Marston Moor and Naseby, but that is another story. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay then, let's do the marching armies then, how they were organised and stuff like that. We have done a bit before, I should say, at Edge Hill, but for completeness, let's bring it all together here. So, we have three main groups, infantry, cavalry, artillery. I think I might start with artillery, non-traditionally, just to get it out of the way. Artillery was a bit of a mare, and some of it was of very doubtful value. There were three types, light, heavy, and then the big stuff mounted in forts and on coastal defences. The latter was pretty immobile. Heavy guns, only a little bit more mobile, to be honest. The effort of dragging it around was quite astonishing. Slow and very expensive of horse and oxen. So by 1645, the new model artillery train had a thousand horses. But for sieges, there is no doubt heavy artillery was required. Light artillery was quite another matter. You could move it around the battlefield, but it still took a while and appeared to have limited practical impact. And it did produce a lot of smoke. A lot. There is a psychological thing, though. Once Captain John Gwynne had seen a whole file of men six deep with their heads struck off with one cannon shot, he was likely not to forget it and to treat them with a bit more respect. But it seems that only at a few battles such as Langport in 1645 did field artillery play a really crucial role. The thing also was the stunning array of different types of light gun and the ordnance you needed to organise around them, from the one-pound robinet to a falconet to a falcon, a minion, a sacker, a drake, a demi-culver, and I could go on. It seems everyone also hated the artillery train guys. Where have they got to? Can we get going now? The infantry were divided into regiments of 1,200 men, theoretically, commanded by a colonel, and divided into ten companies each broadly with a captain. They were, in practice, continually under strength. Each had chaplains, drum masters, fifers, that sort of thing. Apparently by now the English had fallen out of love with that king of instruments, the bagpipe, which is a shame, but there you go. The infantry were divided into two types, broadly, pike and a musket. Now, apparently waving a very long 18-foot spear was way more prestigious than shooting somebody with a musket, which is interesting. Maybe something to do with, I don't know, the honour of personal combat? I'm not sure. The idea of the pike was not really to have your opponent's eye out with the long pointy thing, though that would be a bonus. The thing is, though, that armour tended to glance the blow of a long stick off to one side, so the most deadly injuries came not from the pike square, they came from musket fire and during the running away stage. Nope. The normal thing was push a pike, two bodies of men trying to make the other back off and move away, please. It took quite a lot to get these two to get it on. Quite often they just get very close, but push does not in fact come to shove, and they just wave their stick at each other. 
it's worth noting that carrying also a very long, heavy stick around with you for mile after muddy mile is a pain in the bum. I think the expression for fighting as a pikeman was to trail the pike. So obviously, like soldiering is supposed to be, I am told, 99% boredom and general inconvenience and schlep, 1% abject terror, blood, mayhem and a grisly death in pain, agony and mud. So often the poor folk turned the very long stick into not quite such a long but easier to carry stick. There would though come a time in their professional lives when they would regret this decision when they came against the longer stick. However, you can see why they'd want something more manageable. They were rocking a lot of kit, heavy armour, helmet, breastplate, leg guards. On the march with their kit, we are talking 50 to 60 pounds. Though, of course, that's much lighter if you look at it in kilos, because it's only 27 kilos. Metric is so lightweight. Pike men were supported by flanking musket, so the pike's job was also to protect these musketeers from the Nazi horses. The accepted rule of thumb was that you needed two units of pike to every unit of musket, but it turned out that pikemen, despite their armour, were rather vulnerable to musket fire, and so they kept dying, which was annoying. Plus, they were pricey. You could equip two musketeers for one piketeer. So, by the end of the war, in the new model army, there were as many as three or four musketeers for every pikeman. Musketeers marched in ranks three or six deep and fired into the infantry ahead of them, marching and counter-marching to keep up a continuous body of fire. They kept a bandolier filled with shot and usually the musket was lit by a burning match carried with them. The maintenance of the match was a big thing. You didn't want to run out, that's bad. You don't want it wet, that's bad. It was complicated. Standing with your musket and no match would be like standing over firework at the parish bonfire night display with no port fire to light it and an expectant crowd, and it would be just as bad for your health and reputation. The whole regiment might take 15 minutes before a battle start to light up their matches and get ready, so it took time too. A musket could hit and kill a person at 300 yards, but was inaccurate at anything over 50. Hence, Musketeers being gathered together to fire in massed volleys to create a hail of lead that was bound to hit something somewhere along the line. Still, it seems that the recipients of such fire stood a very good chance of survival. Only about 15% were hit, possibly less. There were also fire locks, flint locks basically, much quicker but unreliable. Much, much less smoke though, which was a thing, because there is smoke all over the place on the battlefield quite difficult to see very much. Flintlocks, though, were mainly specialist and mainly used by scouts and dragoons. Because if you're trying not to be seen, big clouds of smoke over your head are a bad thing. The pikes were there to protect them from the cavalry. Sometimes musket fought within the pike unit, the pikemen standing in open order so that muskets could march and countermarch within the unit. But more usually they were separate, flanking the pike companies and when a musket man shouted, bloody hell, there are some horses coming there to kill us, they'd scuttle into the pikes where they'd be warm, safe and toasty, spitting salts and bullets at the men on horses, which seems cowardly. Come out and fight, you coward! But essentially, sound thinking. The pike phalanx was a solid and a scary thing. Lord Sayin's seal at Marston Moor described them as standing like an iron wall, so they were not easily broken. Musketeers had a second weapon, the other end of the musket. 
When they ran out of balls, they had to have the balls to run at the enemy and try to brain them with the butt of the musket, basically unsophisticated, but effective in the right circumstances. There are as yet no bayonets. I think there may be a mention of something that sounds like it in France in 1647, but not yet. So, a couple of examples of infantry meeting. First, Walter Slingsby at the Battle of Cheriton. The foot, keeping their ground in close body, not firing till within two pikes length, and then three ranks at a time, after turning the butt end of their muskets, charging the pikes and standing close, preserved themselves and slew many of the enemy. Infantry battles, if the men kept their discipline, could therefore be long and hard. We heard from Harry Foster and his trained bands, and all that all sounded very hard at Newbury. Here's William Brereton at Roughton Heath. They fought so long and so fiercely until all their powder and bullet was spent. Afterwards they joined and fell to it pell-mell, one upon another, with the stocks of their muskets. Pell-mell, incidentally, is a phrase that appears at the end of the 16th century, usually military, as in this context, borrowed from the French root to mix. It is also the root of words like metal. There is one other infantry tactic which seems much more innovative and decisive than all of this invented by Alastair McCullough in Ireland and adopted with enthusiasm in the Highlands of Scotland. But that is not for now. We will deal with the Highland charge with Montrose, I think, unless we've already done so, in which case you may get in touch and say, shush, haven't we suffered enough from your prating, sir, and short-term memory loss? Or words to that effect. There is one specialist group of infantry called the Dragoons, they are infantry mounted on small, nimble cobs, lightly armed and armoured, with shorter, more portable musket or firelock, and a sword. Now they were sent nipping around places to cause trouble in inconvenient places, dogs' bodies of all trades, by and large, around to just, you know, mess things up. I am put in mind of head-to-head poter sessions in the wee hours of the days of my youth, when I should have been sucking instead at the teat of knowledge, if you can bear a swift anecdote. So despite the advice of Kenny Rogers, I used to keep my pile of chips neatly stacked to inform my investment decisions. Dave would on occasion lean forward and gently knock all the piles over and mix them up. Irritating. His pile of chips was always a mess, but then by and large, two times out of three, he'd win. So there's a message there. Usually came second at backgammon though. If you have analysis of what the research of behavioural data demonstrates, do get in touch. Probably that we should have been better off asleep. Anyway, that is the spirit of dragoons. They might be used as pickets, holding forward key points like bridges, lining hedges or enclosures, or to provide fire to support formal cavalry, messing up a neat oncoming cavalry formation by thinning them out with a bit of lead shot. They might carry out scouting duties or advanced skirmishing. Basically, knocking over the chips to mess things up. Cavalry, then. Cavalry was very popular in the English Civil Wars. The advantages to being a horse soldier were really quite obvious. You were better paid, there was a bit of social cachet, foraging was much easier and every soldier loves a chicken or two. Being on a horse had advantages over somebody on the ground, though horses were very vulnerable, it has to be said. But the big one was, it was much easier to run away. Running away was when people died, and on a horse, you could be out of there. It's interesting to note that officers died at a much higher rate in the civil wars than did their men, actually, and that's because largely they fought at the front. But equally, officers of foot died at a rate of four to one to cavalry officers. 
I think that tells you all you need to know when selecting your fighting career decision. This did not go unnoticed by the foot regiments as they laboured after their nifty companions. The horse knew well how to save themselves, though not their honour. The result was that the ratio of horse to foot was way out of whack. The idea was to have something like three foot regiments to every one of cavalry, but the ratio was very rarely that. The royalists were particularly bad at this, so in 27 of 57 battles, they actually had more horse than foot. At the same time, incidentally, since initial recruitment was very much organised through individuals raising troops, there gets to be way too many officers knocking about, so the ratio between officers and their men is also a problem, and troops, companies and regiments are usually therefore very under strength. The number of horses in the wars was clearly enormous, especially bearing in mind artillery trains, and yet there doesn't seem to be a big problem getting hold of them. One of the more upsetting things I learned was that there was almost no tradition that shows any great bond between man and horse. No, I love you horse poetry. They were just cars, basically, there to do a job, and they'll probably be dead soon, so no point getting to, to know them and their quirky little ways. There were two types, supposedly, of cavalry. Heavy, with lots of armour, and light, with just light stuff up top. Honestly, there was just one. Heavy cavalry was expensive, it was slow, and soon didn't exist. There was one regiment that lasted quite a while. They were under the command of Arthur Hazelrig, and they were known as the London Lobsters, I think because of all their heavy armour. They didn't do too badly, but they weren't the future. It took a while for parliamentary cavalry to catch up with the quality of the royalist cavalry, although you can overdo that story. The way cavalry battles worked traditionally was that you attacked in a wedge, or a diamond-shaped formation, knee to knee with your fellow riders if you could. But that would be difficult to maintain as you gathered speed. You had a pistol or a carbine in your hand, other hand holding the reins under the pommel of the saddle. Gently you'd go forward at a walk to keep formation until a hundred yards away from the people you hope shortly to call losers. Then get as fast as you can, probably no more than a hurried trot or a canter, to be honest. When you got there, you'd fire your pistol at your man and then maybe throw the thing at his head if you missed. Reach for another pistol if you had time, or if not, go straight to the sword and start hacking. The horsemen facing them would have stood in close formation, stationary, knees locked, waiting to fire until the very last moment. If they held formation after that, they would probably win. If their formation was broken, they were probably toast and might turn and flee anyway. Cavalry battles then turned into a man-to-man -man melee and Lord save you if you are unhorsed, that was potential checking out time. Now, of course, the traditional prey of cavalry were the foot, but that struggle was far from unequal. Basically, a horse would not charge into an obstacle however well-trained, and so, as long as you were in formation, you were comparatively safe in a foot regiment. Plus, remember that thing about having a 10-15% to 15 chance of being hit by musket fire if attacked by a regiment of musketeers? Well, the chances were much better if attacked by a horse because they had guns with a light ball and they were wobbling around on a horse as they shot. So the horse probably had a 5% chance of hitting a footman and while the rate of fire against them from the infantry regiment they were trying to total was way higher. So really resolute infantry was only really in trouble when exhausted or caught by surprise with an attack from the rear 
which is the reason for the success of Cromwell's Ironsides at Naseby and Marston Moor. Right, we're almost there, but there is one more national military force to be reckoned with, which has, in the previous ages, been referred to as England's Garland, and all that flowery stuff. I speak, of course, of the Navy. We have heard how Parliament and the Earl of Warwick won the battle for the Navy's hearts and minds in 1642 to Charles's amazement and horror, and it will broadly stay that way. And Navy men on more than one occasion will march through the streets of London in support for the Revolution, although there are defections of some ships over time, and that does matter. One of the features of the war on land was the increasingly diverse nature of officers in the parliamentary armies. As time goes by, the number of officers lower down the social scale increases. It causes intense sniffiness. It's the world turned upside down thing. It's one of the charges that royalists throw at Parliament. They're led by a bunch of ne'er-do-wells and downbeats and, oof, tradesmen, darling. Anyway, that's as maybe. The point is, this happens in the Navy too after Charles loses control to Warwick. Parliament prefers sea captains that knew, well, what's the expression? Oh yes, what they were doing. This was such a thing, had been from Tudor times, that these two groups even had names. Tarpaulin captains were commoners from the trade of the seas, and gentlemen captains were just born to it, darling. Naturals, you know. There was great snobbiness about it all again, social awkwardness and envy. Clarendon's social chin wobbled with outrage at these tarpaulins being appointed just because they were competent. The cheek of it! One of them, William Batten, particularly tweaked the Clarendonian nipple. A man of rough nature and no breeding by that of a common mariner. The merchant William Rainsborough will become a vice-admiral, as will his son, the political radical Thomas Rainsborough, although the man referred to often as the father of the Royal Navy... Robert Blake, must be called a gentleman captain. Most of the naval campaigns under Warwick were about supporting war on land or trying to police the Irish seas to stop those royalist soldiers coming over from Ireland. But in 1643, with the royalists successing capturing the ports of Bristol and Gloucester and Hopton and Morris's victory in the southwest, that all gave Charles ports and so he was able to establish his own navy of sorts he makes a pretty creditable job of it. He has a couple of naval defections, persuades some Bristol merchantmen to come over to his side, and so he manages to build a navy of about 18 ships. In addition, these were joined by Irish privateers out of Wexford and Waterford, and naval captains running ships for the Confederate Association of Ireland. There is no doubt, though, that Parliament had the best of it at sea, the Navy played a crucial role in protecting London's trade and operating against pirates in the Channel. If things had been different, if Charles had kept control of the Navy, London would have been blockaded from international trade. Think about what an immense difference that would have made. I'm even prepared to tread on the sacred ground of popular history and officially declare it one of the great what-ifs of history, a GWIH. Think about how London's merchants would have reacted to having trade strangled the packed-in inhabitants losing a source of supplies, already the lack of coals from Newcastle, meant that London's woods were being largely cut down for firewood and that wouldn't go on forever. Support for Parliament in London would have almost certainly have been much harder to maintain. So that didn't happen, and the Navy is a significant advantage for Parliament. But from 1643, they didn't have it all their own way, and when the fighting of the First Civil War is done, 
Prince Rupert and his younger bro, Morris, will play a fascinating little cameo on the high seas to prove it, where they will buckle and they will swash in the most dashing and Rupertian style, and Rupert will demonstrate one of his undoubtedly positive characteristics, his complete loyalty and dedication to his rather ungrateful king's cause. Oakley Doakley, on that note, I think we can finish for the day. Next time we will go down and dirty, we will talk about how violence spreads through the arteries of most of England, how towns and cities everywhere are forced to arm and protect themselves like days of yore, when a knight won his spurs in the stories of old and went and burned up his opponent's peasants, how soldiers come to be part of the national daily bread and the myriad of sieges and how they're conducted. And then we'll add up the human cost on communities and see if such adding of all the beans make a hill. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you so much for your attention. If you've made it thus far, I hope the experience has not scarred you so much and that I will see you next week. But if not, see you in January 1644. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.